Morning. For those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Mark Newman. Uh, my family and I have been at Creekside for about 10 years, so half the lifespan of this church. If you've been here long enough that it seems like you should know me, but you don't, I work in the sciences, so we're a little uh, off socially sometimes, but you probably know my wife. She has the social competence of the family. Um, and normally when I preach, she will escape to the downstairs so that if I say something horribly embarrassing, she won't be here, but she's outdone herself this time. She's in South America uh, for my sermon, so uh, her and Savannah are down there checking out some work uh, with All God's Children International, which has been awesome for them, So, and I will say people often like thank me like if I preach, but I want to say that like this is a really beneficial process for me to have to dig into the Word uh, to have a chance to give you something that's worth hearing. Um, it's good for me. For my wife, like, I'm not very good at it in terms of how much time it takes to get something reasonable put together. Um, so I'll thank her because it's a burden on her, um, and there's not as much uh, to gain from it, especially since she's not even here. So, um, so church history, um, as most of you know, has been full of lots of debates, right? Some of them, like, super worthy debates that are at the core of what we believe, like, is Jesus really God? Is he really the only way, right? The universalists don't read their Bible carefully enough to get the right answer to those really core questions. You know, we've debated big words like egalitarianism and transubstantiation and eschatology. Um, some debates that seem really important in the minute and then in looking back seem kind of silly, like what you just experienced here. There are plenty of churches not that long ago that if you dropped that into the church service, right afterwards you'd be debating what? Should a woman be up here giving an announcement? Should the bass player be wearing a hat? Um, and should we have drums in our service? Like people lived through those debates and they were like destructive, right? Um, and not great for the church. Um, and the church has debated you know, things we call social issues. You know, unfortunately, the church in America and places debated whether antebellum slavery was a biblical thing or not, uh, sexual ethics, all of these things. And we've certainly debated, like, silly topics um, or what we would call silly now. So we believe in the resurrection. Amen. Um, there was actually a debate about whether you could be resurrected physically if you were eaten by cannibals. Um, <laughs> seriously. We, we saw a quote from St. Augustine. He actually addressed that in writing um, because people were arguing about it. Um, and my favorite stupid debate from philosophy class from Willamette is, can God build a rock so big that he can't lift it? Probably not worthy of our time today. And in today's text, Paul's going to say, don't argue about stupid stuff and don't quarrel. Right? But you can also see, if you go into Acts, you can see like this two-month period, or three-month period, where he's in the synagogue, like arguing and debating for what? For like the proper understanding of what the kingdom of God is, and a proper understanding of who Jesus is, and that he resurrected, and that he's your Savior. And that was actually relatively unfruitful. So then he went out of the synagogue and into more of like a secular space, and he spent two years there with this same debate and same conversation with people, and that was actually in Ephesus, and from those efforts came the church of Ephesus. Um, when he left there, he left that church in the capable hands of his protege, Timothy. 
And he wrote a couple letters to Timothy, and we've been going through the second one of those, creatively named Second Timothy, um, and we're going to be in that today. And when, when Paul writes letters, like the, the letters to the church in Ephesians, um, Ephesians um, is actually a really good example of his sort of style of writing, because he says to them, Christians, like, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, right? You're Christians, let's act like it, and he has a lot of descriptions of that. And that's always backloaded for Paul, right? He starts the second half of his letter with that. But in the first half, he wants to make really clear who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, and how we're saved. So like in Ephesians, in the first half, he says this, you were dead in your sins, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, And then says this key thing, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, right? Because that's what religion is, right? Like, get the do's and don'ts, get your scorecard good enough, right? And that punches your ticket, right? And Paul is really clear that Jesus and his work punched our ticket for us, right? And the reason I bring that up is because the text that we're in today, Paul is saying live like this, right? As believers, live like this, not like this. And so we don't want to get that backwards. We need to understand that that's to flow out of a heart changed by the gospel, right? That doesn't create the means by which we're safe, right? That's a really key thing that Paul always gets straight, so we'll get it straight ourselves too. Ah, title slide, perfect. Um, So he's going to tell us in today's text, be, quote, honorable vessels to be useful to the master. Um, In the first part of the section, uh, he's going to focus on, if we want to break this down in an outline, priority and pursuit of usefulness, and then in in the latter part, our posture in that. Um, This was a little different until I met with Steve, and he said, hey, that's good. How about like this? And I said, Okay, that's better and alliterative, so we'll go with that. Um, so copyright to Steve Monsoor on the outline. Um, way to go, Steve. Um, so stand with me. Go to 2 Timothy 2. We're going to read verse just 20 and 21 to get started. And before we get started, I want to say this about a word we're going to read in the text, and that is the word master. So I don't know how you all, like how that word hits you, but in 2022, when I think of the word master, I think of like, I don't know, rich and affluent and influential and powerful people, um, you know, Biden, Trump, Bezos, Gates. We don't tend to always have warm, fuzzy feelings in our hearts. If we did word association with the word master, we might think of master and slavery. I want to just remind us before we read this that this is the master that lovingly created you, that gave himself for you, that desires relationship with you, and in the ultimate sacrificial move, saved you. So read that word with fondness as we read this text together. Now in a great house, verse 20, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Let's pray before we get into this. God, thank you for your word. God, I know my mind has been so distracted in in preparing this, and you know that, and I just pray that as this word comes to your people, 
that you would help my mind to be clear, but also for me to just get out of the way and let your word speak to your people. And we just will give you the honor for what it does in our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Have a seat. So, Second Timothy is full of metaphors. You think about the people that Paul and Timothy are preaching to. It's like five, maybe 10% literacy rate, right? So they used a lot of word pictures, as we like to also when we teach. Um, and there are tons of them in Second Timothy. This metaphor includes a master and his house. Right, but it's not the story, like we, we sang before about the fact that we're orphans, uh, but this is not the story of Little Orphan Annie, right? In Little Orphan Annie, you have this wonderful master with this huge house, and he invites this poor orphan in. That's a pretty good parallel. But then what? Like, her risk is gone. Her life is nothing but comfortable. She has servants at her disposal. And most importantly, in terms of it being different, is the movie's named after her, and so is the book, right? But this book... Like, the central character is not us, right? It's the master. So we need to make sure we keep that straight as we study this. So this is a story of the master and how amazing he is, and we get to be willing instruments in his service, which is a beautiful privilege of ours. So the master and his house. So big old house. This is probably not old enough to be a good picture of what that looked like. But this old, big, beautiful house, what does it represent? In the metaphor, it represents the church. And there are two different ways you can think about this. So church, as a theological word, big C, means what? It means 100% of those that are in the kingdom of God and exactly zero participants that aren't in the kingdom of God, right? And that's not what this metaphor is. This metaphor is the church as we experience it, right? Which is full of, as Paul describes, vessels of honor. So Paul and Timothy and people that, like, gave their life to serve the Lord, Right? And then it's also full of people like me who strive for that, and we struggle. And Paul has a ton to say in all his letters to encourage us to strive to be vessels of honor, right? And then there are also future believers in the church, right, that haven't yet said, I'm going to follow Jesus with my life. And then there are also pretenders and people who are in and amongst the church uh, for different reasons, and they have no interest in submitting themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, and in the immediate context of this, this bigger section, there are also people amongst the church that are false teachers, right? That are going to teach things that are actually contrary to the gospel, and we want to be really careful with that. So if we continue the metaphor, because we've got to get to the pottery, that's us. Um, if we got this big house in the first century... The average person in the first century is, like, way poorer than anyone we probably know, right? Like, there's just not a lot of wealth and substance in that time period, right? So if one of those people, if you were one of them, and you got invited to a party at the big house, right, um, you would walk in and you'd see things that you're not accustomed to seeing, right? You'd see a, maybe a big, beautiful vase, if you're sophisticated like Paul, a big, beautiful vase, um, <laughs> There might be a gold and silver bowl that they're serving fruit in. Like, these are honorable vessels in this monster house uh, for the master. And if we wanted to maybe best represent, uh, in the easiest way to understand, the distinction between that and a vessel of dishonor, maybe when you're at this party, 
and it's been three or four hours, and maybe you had some coffee, and it's time for you to go because you have to go. Um, and you might leave, and a servant might say, oh, do you have to go? And you'd say, well, I don't have to leave, but I have to go. But there's no indoor plumbing, right? And the servant might say to you, hey, this is the master's house. Like, we live a little bit differently. Uh, still haven't invented indoor plumbing, I don't think. Um, but if you go down the hall, take a left, and then take a right, uh, there's a room, and in that room, there's a chamber pot. And that's how we do it around here, is you can go in the comfort of the house. Wow, that's fantastic. And then the servants will deal with that. But what they would never say is the silver and gold bowl that served the fruit is now empty. So why don't you take this with you and use this, but, but, please return it to me because I want to scrub it out really well before we serve dessert in it, right? Now, it's a little bit crass, but, like, that's the distinction that Paul's trying to draw here, right, between vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, and what he's saying here is there should be a distinction also in us as vessels of honor compared to vessels of dishonor to be useful to the master, to God. And Paul's going to give us some advice on how to conduct ourselves. So one of the words he uses before he says we're useful to the master is in my translation, it says sanctified. The, the version that I read says set apart as holy. So this has kind of two complementary angles we can take on this. Paul in Thessalonians says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. So who's doing the sanctification? God. How well is he doing? Well, you're sanctified entirely. May your body be preserved complete without blame. So someday when you're dead and gone, you get to stand before God, and you need to stand before God, not as pretty good, right? But we need to stand before God as holy. And that's a miraculous work of God, right? The righteousness of Jesus is given to us. That's a miraculous thing. That's sanctification God style. But the same author, Paul, writes in Romans this, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, so you were a mess in sin, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in what? Sanctification. So this is more of the practical sanctification that Paul is sort of leaning into in our metaphor, and he says to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable, you want to please God, right? So don't act in a way that makes you a poopy pot, a chamber pot, and Stott, the great commentator, said it a little bit more eloquently. He said this, purity of doctrine and purity of life is the essential condition of being serviceable to Christ. So, as good pastors, of course, which I'm not a pastor, but we've got to have rhyming, so we'll say your creed and your deed, right? Your doctrine, the things you believe to be true that we teach, that needs to be um, appropriate as well as our deed, both to reflect the gospel. So our highest calling is to be useful to the master, it says, prepared for every good work. And what are those good works? I'm sure we're all on the same page that that includes, one, catching big fish, and two, making delicious pies. We're all on the same page? Um, I learned this recently on an air, airplane. My neighbor, um, after schooling me on the versatility of the F word, um, nice guy, a little rough around the edges, um, I pulled out my Bible to work on my sermon because I was a little bit behind. And he said, hey, have you ever met anyone who's died and met God? And to my knowledge, I haven't. So I said, no. And he said, well, you have now. He said, yeah, I had this massive heart attack and I, I met God. And he said, I think first he told a joke and God complimented his sense of humor. 
And then um, he said, do you want to go back? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, then for what purpose? Like, I need a reason to send you back. And he said, this lady I know makes these delicious pies, and I would like to learn how to make them. And God, in all that he's got going on in all of human history, evidently, said that's a sufficient reason, so he sent him back. And I said, okay, how's it going with the pies? And he said, oh, I never learned how to make them. Like, okay, so with this gift that God has given you, the God of the universe, like, what do you do with your time? And he said, well, I gave my wife 100000 bucks and a contractor, and I go fishing out in the ocean for weeks at a time. So that hopefully is not the purpose for which God has for us, right? And if we, as we're reading Paul, there are really two main things that he, he points in on is that this treasure that we have, the gospel, we're to guard it and keep it and share it, right? That's a big part of our purpose here. Now, the contrast between what Paul calls... Skipped one there. Vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Go back clear through uh, Randy's. Randy did an awesome job last week, by the way. Good job, Randy. Um, The stuff on the top is what he taught on, and then the stuff I'm teaching on is the bottom. And you can see vessels of honor. He talked about how they've gone away from the truth. They're leading others astray. And then we have some other behaviors that we're going to talk about today. So Paul's kind of got this little bit back and forth thing going on of contrasting vessels of dishonor with vessels of honor. Now, we are not going to lead people astray. Why? Because we're going to accurately handle the word of truth. We're known by God, and we're going to abstain from wickedness, meaning the creed and the deeds both addressed there, even in what Randy was talking about last week. Why? So we can be sanctified and useful to the master, and then some other things that we're going to talk about here. Now, Paul does a really nice job of describing these dishonorable vessels to Titus. And I don't know if I have my church history quite right, but Titus and Timothy are sort of like brothers from another mother. Like, they're both doing similar things in different cities, right? So Timothy's in charge at Ephesus, and if you go to Corinth, same sort of story. Paul's been there to help raise up the church, and then Titus is there. So he's going to give them similar messages about how to do this church thing, right? Um, And he has a really nice description, I think, of... This vessel of dishonor, he says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So if that doesn't make any sense, just think of people who are teaching that the way to salvation is different than what the gospel says, that we got to work our way in, right? And he says what? They must be silenced because they are teaching things they should not teach. Why? For the sake of sordid gain, so that they can get rich. And I guess maybe to close the loop on my friend on the plane, um, he also said, I I went to church school with a guy, um, speaking of church, that is just doing awesome. He said he not only preaches at his church, he owns the church. I don't know what that means. And he's a multimillionaire. I'm like, okay, maybe something to be a little bit careful of in terms of what they're teaching if the motivation is so that they can get rich. But you'll see the teachings are not right and then drop down. They profess to know God but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and useful to the master. No, worthless for any good deed, right? So dishonorable creed and dishonorable deed laid out nicely there to Titus. And then what he's going to teach Timothy is how do you avoid like going in this direction, right? Because think about Paul. He's almost ready to die, right? So he's looking back on his ministry of all these churches that have started. Some are flourishing. Some have gone off the rails, 
Some of the leaders are flourishing. Some have gone off the rails. And he's got a really good perspective of, like, where does that start, right? So go to verse 22. And you know what? We'll honor the, the word of the Lord twice. Stand with me. We'll read the rest of it together. That way I'll know who's sleeping. All right, we're in 22. So flee youthful passions, or some of, someone will say youthful lusts, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. By yourself, at home, no. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Have a seat. So if you're like me, the first part of this where he says flee youthful passions or flee youthful lusts, you, you might think of Joseph. This is an old painting of a depiction of Joseph, right? Like the seductress comes. I'm not sure how much he was tempted by her, but he did the right thing in fleeing that temptation, right? And then when I think of the word lust, it tends to circle around that type of situation or that topic. Um, But I want to read what um, Stott, who's a great commentator on this, had to say about that. He said, this is not to be understood exclusively as a reference to sexual lust, but to self-assertion as well as self-indulgence, selfish ambition, and arrogance, And then when he gets into the next text, you can kind of see the style of uh, youthful lust that he's sort of leaning into here. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculation. So replace that, if that doesn't make sense, with stupid debating questions, right? Refuse that, knowing they produce quarrels, and we're not supposed to be quarrelsome. And that, that type of youthful lust, the desire to quarrel and fight and argue and win... Sometimes when we put a little Jesus sheen on it in church, it's a little bit harder to detect. Um, if you want to see an example of that that's more blatant, think of athletics, right? Um, think of two guys that are about ready to go toe-to-toe in MMA or boxing, and they have a press conference. Like, what do they do, right? They get nose-to-nose, and they instruct each other on the havoc. They're going to wreak on each other's faces and this and that, right? It's this, like, arrogance and bravado that in any other setting would just be embarrassing, right? But that's how they roll. And you can sort of see this ego that comes, that really like creeps up as we become young adults. And, and for some of us, never get that in check. Um, and then, you know, when you turn 55 and you put a three-piece suit on and you enter politics, um, it can be the same exact thing. It's just dressed up a little bit, right? Um, and then in the church... The same temptation is there, that temptation to argue and quarrel and fight and win. And I was looking for um, kind of an example of that in the church. I don't, I don't want to like name a name, but I found I thought a really good story that I thought highlighted this well. And it was a, a guy who everything I've ever read from him, I'm like, that's right on, that's right on, that's right on. But eventually in his ministry, there became abuse and just terrible stuff that was going on behind the scenes. And the, the leadership of the church had to come to him and say, like, you're out. Like, you're, you've disqualified yourself from being a leader. And it was this huge, awesome ministry, right? And it's like, okay, like root cause analysis. Like, where does that come from? 
And I think this speaks to that because I found this from early on in his ministry, which I thought was really interesting. This is what he wrote. At this time, our church started an unmoderated discussion board on our website, and it was being inundated with postings by, and then he's going to list some fairly insulting titles um, that aren't very nice. But what he means, and he's right, is that people were teaching things that weren't true. And so he wants to combat this. So what did he do? I went to the website and posted as anonymously as William Wallace, right? Every man dies, not every man truly lives, right? Um, Freedom, right? Like he was a warrior. All right, so I'm going to go in there as a warrior. What am I going to do? I attacked those who were posting. It got insane. Listen to how this ends. It got insane, and thousands of posts were being made each day until it was discovered that it was me, the head pastor, raging like a madman. I mean, he's using profanity, being super crass. Like it was, it was a little bit out of control. Um, raging like a madman under the guise of a movie character. One guy got so mad he showed up at my house to fight me at 3 a.m. And I think what's important is like the like he's combating a lack of truth with truth, but the posture that he's taking there. Like, I, I think had he spent some time, like, bathing in these words that Paul's going to encourage us in, like, it can be really corrective to that sort of thing, which I think is also a good encouragement of why our church is expositional, right? We preach left to right, right? We don't get to go topical and leave this topic alone that God wants to speak through to his word. So I, I like the fact that our church um, has that um, conviction because it doesn't allow you to dodge topics that hit right hit you right in the face when when you've got something that needs addressing. You know, Randy did a really nice job last week about talking about why we need to avoid bad teaching, right? But solid theology delivered with unrighteous bravado and arrogance is also something that we need to look out for. So. You know, young people, when you leave here and go find a church, if you've moved on to a different town or whatever, um, and you find a place where you dig the music, awesome. But this is something I think to also like be looking for is we want leadership that teaches us the right thing, but also that their posture in doing so like represents the gospel well. I think that's an important thing. And I will say we want to be led that way, but the most important place to find that is in ourselves, right? Like, I have that probably more than I should, this desire to debate and fight. My wife would disagree with me, I think, on that. But um, I actually had an opportunity at work to have this, like, two-hour debate with a guy that used to be my boss, and I got done with that, and I was like, that was awesome. I could do that for 40 hours a week. If I could get paid to do that, that would be fantastic. Um, but why? Like, and it really hits at that ego thing of, of wanting to be in that position of, of winning um, and the debating and that, that's gone on that's been destructive in the church is something we really need to look out for, first off, in our own hearts. And Timothy is given great advice on how to avoid this. These are really, really great words. Paul doesn't say, don't do this, just sit in neutrality and avoid what's wrong, right? Like, get rid of the youthful lusts in your life that are going to drag you into a mess, but do it by aiming at something, by pursuing righteousness, doing what's right as God defines it, right? Pursue that, pursue faith, pursue love. You know, don't be at peace, 
because you're not at war, right, to just avoid confrontation, but to pursue peace, right? If we as a church could just take that charge and infuse it into the way we do everything, like how many problems throughout the the history of church could be avoided? It's great encouragement. He goes on with this affirmation. Again, awesome words. Be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And if we can use those words as a filter for how we do all kinds of things, right? Parenting, your relationship with your spouse, at work, within church, whatever. Like, it's a fantastic thing. But he's not giving us, like, magic new words, right? Preston, you mentioned... yesterday when we had our meeting here in the morning, studying the Sermon on the Mount. This is like the first sermon by Jesus that is, um, that's recorded in the Bible. If you've read that, these words sound really familiar, right? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Be peacemakers, have a pure heart, gentleness, be patient when wronged, right? All Paul's doing here is what we're supposed to be doing all the time, right? Which is to take the instruction of our master and applying it to the things in our lives. But it's hard, right, in practical life. But he says in, to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, who said to be gentle and to pursue righteousness with the pure in heart, to be peacemakers, right? And when evil is against us, to be patient through that and to love even your enemies. And that's like the profoundness of Jesus, right, is he could take all of this and not summarize it in just a few words. He summarized it in one word, right, love. And if we can use that as a filter for the conversations that we're having, the interactions that we're having, like what a difference it can make. But it's not easy. I mean, I know for me, I went through this, I don't know, like a bazillion times. And I kind of went through it, went to bed, got up, got an email from work. Like, ah, shoot. Somebody messed something up. It's not the first time. And I'll tell you the conversation I had with them when I use this as a filter, uh, fail, fail, fail. Now, fortunately, that conversation was only in my head at that point. Um, but it stopped me in my tracks of, like, what hypocrisy to, like, go through this. And then when your kid just happens to be the 17th time that you've had to tell him to don't do X or do Y or whatever, um, or you're frustrated with your spouse or whatever, like, there aren't any, like, caveats and exceptions to this, Right? Be kind to all, unless it's your sister, right? Um, Be gentle and correcting, unless your kid's really driving you nuts, or whatever, right? Like, there there aren't any exceptions to this where we get out of it. Um, But also, what you notice is the word correct isn't optional either, right? That's got to be part of our rhythm as believers, is to be corrected. And the church, we can fail, and we have miserably throughout history by not applying kindness and patience and gentleness when we're addressing issues. But we can also choose to not love, right, by just leaving things alone that need to be dealt with. And Paul, I mean, these are Paul's words in instructing this, right? So I can only assume he did pretty well at following them. But he didn't mess around. When your creed denied the gospel, I mean, Randy really hit this up well. And if you haven't listened to his sermon from uh, last week, I would encourage you to do so. 
but when your deed denied the gospel, he also wasn't messing around. But I love the way that his, I love the way Paul addresses this. I'll show you two examples, one in our text here and one in Corinthians. So one for Timothy's church, one for Titus' church, right? So in 1 Corinthians 5, he's, there's someone wicked and immoral and unrepentant in the church. And if you read like the context, like it's pretty nasty stuff, right? He says, I wrote to you, don't associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person. Remove the wicked man from amongst yourselves. Why? Because we can't handle being around this? He goes on to say in that you're going to be around this stuff in the world, right? You're going to get exposed to this. But in the church, you know, we don't want this. But what's the motivation? And it really comes back to love, like love of the church and love of the person, right? So two examples here in our text and then in 1 Corinthians. Look what he says. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. What does he mean by that, right? If we allow that wickedness to just run amok in the church, like it wreaks havoc by spreading, right? And he says the same thing here. It spreads like gangrene. That was from Randy's text, which is part of this larger text. It spreads like gangrene, right? Which is when your flesh is actually rotting while you're alive, right? Which usually results in amputation, which is not fun today. But in the first century, like this is a gruesome picture of if we don't deal with this stuff, like it spreads. So what's Paul doing there, though? He's loving the body. But look in the bottom there how he loves the person also, right? So that he may be saved. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. And if our filter is love for how we're addressing this, then that's where this is supposed to head, right? If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses from the snare of the devil. And I, the wording, like the order of the wording is interesting here, right? You've got repentance leading truth. Um, and I don't know that it always has to follow that recipe. But, you know, debating the truth into someone to lead to repentance, if our posture and our motivation isn't love, Logic without love, not super useful, right? And we can apply these principles to the way that we live and the way that we interact when people are watching. I would think if Paul came into our church and we said, oh, here's what we've got. We've got all these interactions, kind of like you had in your church. Uh, We also have a whole bunch of interactions between believers that go on on these things, our phones, right? And I am not going to be a guy who get up here and lecture you on social media, whatever that is, because I don't do any social media. Um, but every aspect of our life, whether it's something we're posting, the conversation we're having, like the, the truth of this and the filter of love as our motivation and being gentle and kind and all of those things applies to everything that we do, Right? Paul states here what the goal is for every wayward chamber pot, right? Repentance and restoration, which must be granted, must be granted by God, right? We have to repent, but ultimately, it's a miraculous work to transform any chamber pot into something honorable, right? Um, You musician folks with your honorable instruments um, can come back up to close this out. So Paul's made it clear we're to defend and protect the gospel, But then here and in several other places, he puts a lot of emphasis on don't quarrel, 
don't fight about stupid things if they distract from the gospel, right? And that led me into this sort of like line of thinking. Um, not sure it was terribly productive, but like, okay, then I guess we have to categorize everything, right? Is this, you know, biblical baptism? Am I supposed to fight for that or am I supposed to avoid quarreling, right? What you know to be right about abortion or spiritual gifts, God's design for sex. Um, maybe you're debating someone within the church or maybe you're having a heart-to-heart conversation with a child or a close friend, you know, or whatever. Um, I know the list of stupid questions at least includes, can God build a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? So I'll stay away from that one. I know that there's the centrality of importance of the gospel that we're to fight and protect. But I don't know if I have the wisdom to, to categorize some of these other topics in terms of, like, protect and fight or whatever, right? But what I do know is this, is more often than not, it isn't the topic that creates disunity. It's our posture as believers as we enter into these conversations, right? Paul's words here are a lens through which we can judge our posture, right? We can hope to do well going forward, but if we just look back at our conversations with our kids and our spouses and, 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 like these are great words to say like how well are we doing at having our heart transformed by the gospel. So church, pursue righteousness, pursue peace with all men, have an expectation of kindness and gentleness of yourself, regardless of how right you are or how vile another's response might be. Know that truth without love is empty in its effectiveness and allow God to do his work in the hearts of others as we try to practice the same level of patience that he's shown to us. Last week, Randy gave a beautiful benediction um, that seems hard to match, um, so I'll keep it simple. Um, Don't be a poopy pot. And... Let's serve our master honorably and well.